sure this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? You weren't here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Clarence. Yes, George? Where's Mary? Oh, well, I, I, I can't. Uh... I don't know how you know these things, but tell me, where is she? I'm if you not... know where she is, tell me where my wife is. I'm not supposed to tell. Please, Clarence, tell me where she is. You're not going to like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. She never married. Where is Mary? Where is she? She's, Where is she? She's just about to close up the library. Oh, there must be some easier way for me to get my wings. Hey, friends, Paul here. Be listening to part eight in our Problem of Evil series. The reason why I started off this episode with a clip from the holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life, will become apparent to you momentarily, or maybe I should say, as we get into today's episode. If this is your first time tuning into this program, I would recommend that you go back and listen to the previous parts in this particular series. Each episode is going through a sort of chronological history of Christian thought as it relates to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And so we've been going through, starting with the biblical literature throughout church history, so as you can imagine, each episode is building on concepts from the previous episode as we, or as this happens in history with the thinkers, the way that they build their thoughts upon the work of someone else that has gone before them. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Shema Apparel. I've been telling you guys about Shema Apparel over the last few episodes, and I hope you've had an opportunity to check out their website. I always provide a link in the description of this podcast to their website. They've just come out with a brand new flannel. The flannel is incredibly comfortable. The shirt is it's the best flannel I've ever worn. It's made out of all organic materials as well as the rest of their clothing. This clothing is perfect for city wear or travel, and probably most importantly, you're, you're supporting the, the, the work that Ali and Adam, the founders and CEOs of Shema Apparel, you're supporting the work that they're doing around the globe to give women who have come out of human trafficking, have been rescued from human trafficking, they're giving them work, providing them with a living, sustainable living wage, working in hospitable, good working conditions, and they're providing them with the dignity of this meaningful work, work that pays them in a, in a way that they can actually support themselves with. It's, it's a beautiful thing they're doing. So go on out, buy a flannel, buy some shirts, buy some clothing from Shema Apparel and support the women around the globe who have been rescued from these horrific evils and have now been given another chance on life and an opportunity to 
feel good about themselves and support themselves. So please consider visiting my friends at Shema Apparel, purchase some clothing, support the good work that they're doing in the world. In the last episode, we explored the theology of Martin Luther and John Calvin, especially as it related to the problem of evil and suffering. Obviously, these Protestant reformers represented a massive theological change from the Roman Catholic Church, but when it came to theodicy, Luther and Calvin still fit well within what we could call the classical position established most notably by Augustine in the 5th century. Remember, we talked about last episode, Luther and Calvin saw themselves as the the, the true expositors of St. Augustine. They saw themselves as the one reclaiming the church, reclaiming the proper theology of the church that they felt had been lost over the centuries. Certainly, not all people in this classical school of Christian thought would be in agreement about the implications of the shared metaphysical propositions about God typical of the Augustinian and Thomistic schools of thought. Things like the extent to which human will is free or predestined, or, or whether God's existing outside of time and foreknowing all things meant that all things have been intentionally predestined by God to occur, or even whether God picks who will be saved and who will be damned, these sorts of implications were up for debate. The Catholic Church had long struggled with how two core classical beliefs could be reconciled together. These two core beliefs were, one, that God's grace is the supreme cause of salvation, not human will, like what Augustine thought Pelagius and Julian of Aclanum were teaching, and two, that the human will is totally free and responsible for its consent or rejection of God's grace. When Luther and Calvin explicitly taught that human will is not free, and especially in the case of Calvin, that what God has eternally foreknown and has intentionally permitted is not really that different than what God has predestined, it challenged the second proposition that many classical theists, especially in the tradition of Thomas Aquinas, held to be essential. If God's sovereignty eliminates the possibility of free will, then... Well, as Julian of Aclanum, Erasmus, Jacobus, Arminius, and many others argued, well, then we lose the entire foundation for ethics. And, and even worse, this God who causes all evil, suffering, and the, the damnation of millions, maybe even billions, appears to be a moral monster. This concern could be summed up in the words of the well-known free will theist who lived, you know, generations after Calvin. That famous Wesley brother John Wesley once wrote in regards to the whole Calvinist predestinarianism, quote, You represent God as worse than the devil, more false, more cruel, more unjust. But you say you will prove it by scripture? Hold! What will you prove by Scripture? That God is worse than the devil? It cannot be. Whatever that Scripture proves, it never proved this. Whatever its true meaning be, this cannot be its true meaning. In response to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church went through its own counter-reformation. 
This counter-reformation began with the Council of Trent, which was held between 1545 and 1563. So what happened at the Council of Trent? Well, this is really important, even if you're not a Roman Catholic, it'll help you understand a bit of the, the theological history of the church. At the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church reformed laws trying to curb some of the bad clergy behavior, and they did that with mixed results. They also decided to officially include some apocryphal books into the Bible, like First and Second Maccabees, for example. Probably because some of these books contained passages that supported Catholic doctrine like purgatory, which is, you know, they, they claim you could find support for that in Second Maccabees. Obviously, the Reformers, like Luther and Calvin, especially in the case of Luther, Luther bringing up the the bad behavior of the clergy, and so the, the Roman Catholic Church does take a look at that, right? And then, you know, the, the Protestant reformers are saying sola scriptura, sola scripture, scripture alone, you know, this is where we get our, our, our doctrine from, not the traditions of men, right? And so <laughs> what, what was, ends up being the counter move? Oh, well, we'll just kind of expand the canon to include the things that might support some of the, um, the doctrines that we've been teaching, like purgatory. What's most important, though, to our discussion is that during the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church declared that the theology of Luther and Calvin, who seemed to be teaching that God works evil, a la Luther's alien acts of God, and who also seemed to teach that, that, that God predestined people to do evil, those ideas were declared heretical. But this didn't have unanimous approval among all Catholics. Some already, like Calvin, had seen predestination as the logical conclusion of Augustine and Thomas Aquinas's theology, in particular their metaphysical system, the, the way that they understood the nature of God and the universe to work. And, and Calvin actually had a pretty good case on his side for being the proper expositor of Augustine's theology, especially, as we talked about in previous episodes, especially the theology of Augustine's later life. You know, when we, we talked about this before, the, the change that we maybe saw in Augustine, who in his early days sounded in, in many ways like Origen or Gregory of Nyssa, but post the fall of the Roman Empire and into his debates with Pelagius, he seemed to move more and more away from Origen's theology. So again, that, that post-fall of Rome, you know, happened in 410 AD and into those, those four teens when Augustine got into his debates with Pelagius and Julian of Aclanum and the subsequent work that came later in Augustine's life, you know, Calvin had a pretty strong case that he was getting Augustine right and that he was getting Augustine's reading of St. Paul right. Even among Catholics, there were those like the splinter group known as the Jansenists who agreed with Calvin that Augustine and the Bible taught things like double predestination and determinism. If you remember, double predestination is the belief that God has predestined not only those who will receive eternal life, but he is also predestined in advance those who will receive the punishment of eternal damnation. So there were those like the, Jansen, the Jansenists who, who agreed with Calvin on double predestination and determinism. 
Though there were obviously Thomistic Catholics who disagreed, John Calvin made such a strong case that the metaphysics of classical theism meant the predestination of all things that it created an unprecedented counter-response of new metaphysical systems that attempted to adequately provide a, a framework that would support libertarian free will. If we're going to be able to keep some sort of free will and, and human responsibility for the moral evils of the world, new theologians began to consider how the, the beliefs about the nature, the structure of reality, or about the very nature of God may need to change in order to accommodate that. The first real challenge to classical theism's metaphysics from within the church came from a 16th century Spanish Jesuit named Luis de Molina. Molina tried to come up with a way of explaining the mysterious interaction between God's will and human will in a way that would not infer that God is the cause of evil, while yet also not making the human will the cause of its own salvation and a power greater than the will of God. This was the tension that the church was experiencing. The Catholic Church had seen in the Reformation what they felt was an error on the part of the reformers like Luther and Calvin to make the human will not free and then by, by a consequence of a lack of freedom of the will and God's determining of all things, it, it makes humans not responsible for their actions. And then in turn, it turns the responsibility towards God. At least that's, again, what much of the, the Catholic Church thought in this Thomistic tradition. So Molina tries to come up with a way of explaining this interaction between God's will and human will so that he could hold on to those, core, those two core principles that the church was trying to hold on to, that, that, that God is the, the, God's grace is the cause of salvation, and yet hu humans are responsible somehow for rejecting that grace, that they are free to respond to it or against it. And without diving into the ditch of what they thought was Pelagianism, at least what you know they thought was Pelagianism, and we go back to earlier episodes to really wrestle with what was Pelagius actually teaching, but that's a discussion that we'd have to go back to and listen to we won't dive into today. So to do this, Molina, he, he made a creative tweak to the metaphysics of classical theism, and even he challenged some of the traditional doctrines of God. In the classical view, God perfectly and eternally foresees all human actions in a singular timeline that originates and ends in God's divine decree. What God has eternally foreknown before there was even time itself must happen. If you remember Luther, Martin Luther and Erasmus's argument, you remember that there were some like Erasmus who didn't see eternal foreknowledge and freedom of the will as being irreconcilable. And in fact, even going back to Aquinas, Aquinas didn't really see those things as being irreconcilable. And there's a lot of debates among Thomists, that is people who follow Aquinas' school of thought, on how that could be. How does eternal foreknowledge not lead to eternal predestination? How does God's eternal foreknowing that you will choose to wear that red shirt today instead of that blue shirt not lead to you ultimately having to choose the red shirt? 
That was up for debate, but by and large part, there were people like Erasmus and even arguably again, and there's some Thomists that are divided on this, like Thomas Aquinas, who didn't see it as being irreconcilable. So if you remember Luther and Erasmus, they have that argument, right? Erasmus doesn't see eternal foreknowledge and freedom of the will as being irreconcilable. Neither does, um, you know, Jacobus Arminius. He doesn't see that either, and this is where he gets into debates with not Calvin himself, but actually later Calvinists. But the metaphysics of how this could be seemed pretty dicey, especially to people like Calvin. And, and I mean, let, let's call a spade a spade here. You know, from Calvin's perspective, what functional difference is there if we take, again, the trivial example of whether or not you chose to wear a red shirt or a or a blue shirt today, if God has eternally foreknown that you will wear a red shirt, this is the singular option in reality for you when you go stand in front of that closet and you're looking and you think you're processing through red shirt, blue shirt, red shirt, blue shirt. God's perfect eternal foreknowledge says it's going to be the red shirt. So, you know, in many ways, this isn't Calvin and Luther before whom, who does this more subtly than, than Calvin. Calvin's very direct about it. Can't we just call it as we see it? You were predestined to that shirt. You cannot do otherwise than choose the red shirt, right? So this is a problem. This is a problem if you're, you're trying to somehow defend the freedom of the will in a way that makes humans morally responsible for their actions and morally responsible for judgment. For Molina, logically prior to God's decree to create the cosmos, God had knowledge not only of everything that moral agents and free creatures could do, but also everything they would do in any possible scenario. Molina called this knowledge of what moral agents would do in a given situation middle knowledge. Using this middle knowledge, God is able to see what Molinists call counterfactuals, or in other words, what would have happened if a person was put in a particular situation. In a sense, you could say that God runs countless mental simulations of the billions of people who could ever live and the innumerable situations those people could experience to see how they would freely respond. Based on that middle knowledge, God is then limited to actualize a world, that is to bring in the actual world, that fulfills his purposes through the free choices of moral agents. Now, this sounds incredibly confusing at first, right? I've, when I've done classes and tried to explain Molinism in the past, there, there's several confusions that come up right away. First one that I, I've I heard, heard from people over the years is, well, okay, does, does that mean that Molina, does that mean that Molinism believes in like, you know, the multiverse, parallel universes, and that, you know, there is a, a version of you out there where you didn't choose the red shirt today, but you chose the blue shirt. Now, that, that's not what traditional Molinism is teaching. That's not what middle knowledge is. 
And this gets really tricky because (laughs) when we start talking about God's knowledge and when stuff happens, you have to keep in mind, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but, you know, Molina, Molina comes from the Augustinian tradition and, you know, he's trying actually not to veer too far away from the classical Augustinian tradition. But what he's doing is trying to come up with like a, is there a creative tweak that he can find which could hold fast these two ideas that God foreknows all things, that it's by his, you know, sovereign grace that people are saved, et cetera, et cetera. Can I hold that in somehow along with the um, responsibility that moral agents have, both humans and angelic beings have, to be responsible for their will, and that their will is actually free to move away from the good. How, how do I do that? And so for Melina, this, this middle knowledge is not something that is a knowledge of alternate universes per se. These counterfactuals are not real. They're not the actual world. Okay, so at least this is what Molina believes, and most Molinists that I've read, you know, um, believe today. This isn't this isn't the case that they're going. Well, there's multiple universes that exist. No, there is one actual domain of reality that God has actualized. He has, by divine decree, made this particular world come to be. But he has middle knowledge of what again all the billions upon billions of possible people and the innumerable scenarios, everything from these little micro interactions in your day about what shirt you should wear, what you should eat for breakfast, to the the massive worldwide events that key players in human history have participated in. All of those things, all of those possible scenarios, there is a realm of possible worlds that aren't real worlds yet. They're possible worlds that God in a sense, and this is this this is analogy. It fails to properly describe this for a Molinist. God processes through the billions upon billions of scenarios and then selects the best one. All right, let's use just because this is probably getting fairly confusing. I think it's let's go to a specific example, like a, an analogy, a, a helpful comparison. And again, all of these analogies break down. Molinists would not be fully satisfied. They'd say, yes, this analogy might be helpful, but this, this is where it fails. So let's go back to the beginning of the podcast and why I played that clip from It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe some of you watched that over the, over the holidays. Let's consider the example of George Bailey in that great holiday movie. Oh, that's it's one of my favorites. I mean, it's just the perfect, the perfect movie. You could say that in that movie, God gave George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, middle knowledge of a world that was far worse off without him. Even though the actual world, so if we're going to kind of interpret this through like a Molinist lens, you could say that the the world that the possible world that George experienced with Clarence the angel wasn't actually the real world. It was middle knowledge of a possible world, a world that was far worse off without Jimmy Stewart's character George. Even though the actual world was still one filled with suffering and disappointment for George, George eventually sees that the actual world was better than this other possible world. Even if that meant 
that in the actual world, he may end up bankrupt, in jail, etc., all the things that George was going through that caused him to go, hey, I wish I had never been born. Of course, It's a Wonderful Life has a happy ending with this wonderful, redemptive moment where all the difficulties of George's life over the previous weeks gets resolved. He's surrounded by his wife, his kids, and friends in his community that love him and have come to put their money back in his bank so that he won't go bankrupt and end up in jail, etc., etc. They gather together in his home with the, the final resolution of the movie being this joyful chorus that they're all singing together. So again, if we interpret this movie through a Molinistic lens, we're able to see how Molinism attempts to address the problem of evil and suffering. God in his sovereignty has decided that it is good for a world to exist containing rational creatures with the capacity to choose. And again, Molina sees this as an offshoot of the Augustinian tradition. So as an offshoot of the Augustinian tradition, as an offshoot of a slight deviation from the classical position, Molinism teaches that God cannot make a world that is perfect without any deficiency in truth, goodness, or beauty, because to do that would mean that, that God would be essentially creating another God right? Aquinas felt this way too. Why isn't everything perfect? Well, if you had a perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty, that you have God. God can't logically make God because God is by his very definition necessary. So God couldn't make a contingent God that's also necessary, right? It's, it's a square circle. It's a married bachelor. It's a, it's a logical impossibility. So that stays the same for Molinism. The world, and I should clarify when I say the world, by this I I mean not just planet Earth, but all of contingent reality contains potentiality and, and possibility. This is something, again, that the Augustinian tradition, the Thomistic tradition affirmed, and if we had to go back even further, this is really what Platonism and Neoplatonism and Plotinus affirmed. Uh, the the world, the contingent reality is by its very definition it, it is the world of possibility. This means that it is possible for the world to move away from the good. So God runs innumerable simulations, if you will, of possible worlds with moral agents, both human and angelic, who have libertarian free will, trillions upon trillions of it's a wonderful life scenarios, a truly innumerable and humanly incalculable set of possible worlds processed and analyzed. And again, these sorts of analogies are just that. They're analogies. A a Molinist will tell you that all of these analogies fail primarily because as temporal beings, we can only think of things in relation to time. But God is still timeless in the classical sense. He is not taking time to calculate the best world. So again, even though all analogies fail for the Molinist, let's try another one. One that I think will be helpful to you in trying to understand Molinism. We'll move out of the world of black and white movies and into a 
more modern world of full HD, 4K, probably even in 3D playing at a local theater near you sort of analogy. We've got to coalesce, because if all we come at him with is a plucky attitude... Dude, don't call us plucky. We don't know what it means. All right, we're optimistic, yes. I like your plan, except it sucks, so let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Tell him about the dance-off to save the universe. What dance-off? It's not a, it's not a, it's not I can Footloose the movie? Exactly like Footloose. Is it still the greatest movie in history? It never was. Don't encourage this, all right? Okay. We're getting no help from Flash Gordon here. Flash Gordon? By the way, that's a compliment. Don't forget, I'm half human, so that 50% of me that's stupid, that's 100% you. Your math is blowing my mind. Excuse me? But does your friend often do that? Strange. We all right? Be back here. Hey, what was that? Going forward in time to view alternate futures, to see all the possible outcomes of the coming conflict. How many did you see? 14,605. How many did we win? Proving once again that even big budget popcorn flicks from Hollywood, even those those superhero movies that so many film snobs like to rail against, even in those movies, even in those films, there is opportunity for philosophical and theological reflection. This scene from Avengers Infinity War could possibly be a helpful tool to maybe give us insights into understanding how middle knowledge might work and to understand Molinism. In the scene, Doctor Strange is using the Time Stone and he browses through 14,605,000 possible futures to determine what it will take for the Avengers to defeat Thanos, right? His conclusion was that there was only one possible world where Thanos could be defeated. Of course, spoiler alert here, spoiler alert for Endgame, I think it's been out for a few years, maybe a couple of years at least, so hopefully you've had plenty of time to see it. If you care about such things, if you don't, this won't ruin anything for you, but spoiler alert, of course, in that one world, the one necessary, the one possible world where Thanos could be defeated, in that one world, Tony Stark, aka Iron Man, must die in order for the evil Thanos to be defeated. In a similar way, we could say God analyzes using his middle knowledge of all possible worlds with all the possible ways moral agents can use their will in an innumerable set of moments, and then, then he chooses to actualize one real world. It is the best of all possible worlds which doesn't mean that it's free of evil and suffering. But it does mean that each instance of evil and suffering is permitted for the greater good of the final redemptive story. Another analogy that's used by the philosopher and Molinist William Lane Craig is that of God being dealt a hand of cards. 
In a sense, Craig acknowledges that limitations have been placed on God for how this game of cards can even go because God's turned the deck over to be shuffled by moral agents he has given free will to. Despite the horrific things that moral agents can do, that we can do with our will, God plays his cards, as Craig says, skillfully and, quote, in such a way that his ultimate ends are achieved through creaturely free decisions, despite the sinful decisions they would make and the evils they would bring about. William Lane Craig continues to write, God's absolute intentions are thus often frustrated by sinful creatures, but his conditional intentions, which take into account creatures' free actions, are always fulfilled. Even sin serves God's conditional intentions in that it manifests his overflowing goodness in the incarnation of Christ for the purpose of rescuing humanity from sin. His power in his redeeming humanity from sin and his justice in punishing sin, end quote. What is this conditional intentions? Well, God's conditional intentions then are what he intends to happen based on the conditions that have been in a way limited to him with this deck of cards he's been handed. He's been handed this the, this this hand. <laughs> he's been handed this hand. He's been handed these cards, these cards which take into account all of the ways free moral agents can use their will towards the good or away from the good. And so these sinful creatures, these creatures can and in fact do, um, do things in, in the world which are not in keeping with God's ultimate intentions, with which, which God's best case scenario <laughs> intentions. But God has these conditional intentions which do have to take into account f- creatures' free actions. And in doing so, God's conditional intentions, they're always fulfilled even though his absolute intentions might not. There are many tragic and horrific evils that seem utterly senseless to us, but the Molinist response to those evils is to remind people that while they seem senseless to us, it's because we do not possess God's omniscience and and we can't see how something as horrific as the death of a child or a tragic terrorist attack We can't see how those things will have a positive ripple effect that leads uh, to a redemptively good and beautiful end in history. Maybe you've heard of the term the butterfly effect before. The term butterfly effect comes from chaos theory, which is a a branch of mathematics that focuses on the, the seemingly random chaotic state of dynamic systems in order to identify patterns or identify trends which would hopefully help us see that these systems are just immensely complex systems of cause and effect, and and they're not totally random, right? In chaos theory, random presumes some sort of mindlessness, or at least to a certain degree, that there's not a pattern. And so this branch of mathematics, chaos theory, tries to to get at, are we just missing some some identifiable pattern or trend there has to be, even in the seemingly chaotic. So in chaos theory, the butterfly effect refers to this principle that 
something as small as a butterfly flapping its wings in Southeast Asia could be the determining factor in the formation, let's say, of a a tornado that hits Oklahoma several weeks later. And you might go, that that seems absurd. That seems ridiculous. And it does. When I first heard of the butterfly effect, I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. How in the world can a little tiny butterfly flapping its wings on the other side of the world be a contributing factor or be the, perhaps we might say the the prime, not the primary, but the, the secondary cause of a tornado that hits the, you know, the, the Midwest? Well, the brilliant award-winning mathematician and meteorologist Edward Lorenz was actually able to demonstrate that this is true. The butterfly effect is a real thing. The modern Molinist would point to the butterfly effect as an example of the human limitations around understanding cause and effect. For them, even the most senseless evil isn't truly senseless. Perhaps it was unfortunate but a necessary flap of a butterfly's wings which God foreknew and permitted in order to bring about the best possible ending for the whole creation. Returning back to that blockbuster Hollywood movie comparison again, was it a morally sufficient reason for Doctor Strange to allow Iron Man to die a painful death in order to stop a far worse evil? Well, I think initial reaction as you leave the film is you're supposed to say, well, yes. You know, well, Doctor Strange, shouldn't you have stopped Iron Man from dying? Could Doctor Strange have stopped Iron Man from dying? Well, I think you could say, yes, he could have stopped Iron Man. He could have stopped Tony Stark from dying. But would that have led to the best possible world? Would that have led to a world where there is more goodness and beauty and truth than there is evil. And in this case, analogy, the answer was no. This was the best possible world that would give us the most truth, goodness, and beauty in this Marvel Cinematic Universe that was, that was possible. It was necessary for Iron Man in the same way that it was, we can say that it was evil for him to be killed that it was bad for that to happen to him. It ultimately leads to something good. That was the one scenario in the 14 or so odd million scenarios where this turns out as a happy ending. And yes, even in that happy ending, there is a sadness to it. There's a sadness to what was lost In the same way, the Molinist would suggest that we must trust the omniscient wisdom of God and his omnibenevolent goodness, that that he has a morally sufficient reason for allowing everything from the Holocaust to Rwanda to the seemingly senseless death of a loved one to a car accident involving a drunk driver, all of these things. All of these things in and of themselves are not good. Just like George Bailey's financial woes were not a good thing, like Tony Stark dying was not a good thing. But in the end, when the story has reached its happy conclusion, we will see that the actual world 
that God has brought about was the best world. In our next episode, we'll explore how even some of the classical Christian theists of Molina's day didn't see Molina's new way of describing God or the metaphysics of reality as being an improvement. We'll hear their response to Molinism as well as other Christian theological perspectives that have good questions for Molinism. Some of them even think that Molina didn't go far enough. Maybe the classical theologians had a whole lot more wrong about God that needed to be changed and corrected. We'll even explore those perspectives too in the upcoming episodes in this series, The Problem of Evil. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. This podcast is brought to you by the Deep Talks Patreon community. From, from people like Paul R., Luke H., Anne B., Michael H., Hannah P., Josh A., Sam P., Tim K., Thank you guys for your support. Thank you to all of you who have been supporting on on Patreon as well. Uh, Can't do this work without you guys. It's so encouraging, your messages, your feedback, your financial contributions to make this podcast happen. I'm so thankful. I'm so excited for what we get to do together. And you're making this happen just as much as I am. So thank you to all of you. If you want to become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community and want to support this podcast and receive you know, additional bonus um, episodes to, to get additional content, you can go over and check out my Patreon page. I'll provide a link in the description. There's entry points for supporting, even if you just want to support for two bucks a month. You know, if everybody that listened to that contributed two bucks a month, uh, it, we'd be able to do so much more with this podcast. It'd be a tremendous blessing branching out into more video um lots of other ideas that I have. So thank you for considering giving uh, and supporting via Patreon. I also want to thank you who have left a uh, charitable review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for those of you that have left a review. If you haven't done so, that's one way that you can help other people discover this podcast is by leaving some feedback, leaving a review, telling people what you think about this podcast, giving it your honest your honest feedback. So I'd encourage you to do that as well. If you have questions, you know, I'd really love to hear from you guys as you listen to today's episode. A lot of people aren't familiar with Molinism. And as you heard today's episode, maybe you had some familiarity of uh, with it. Maybe you didn't have any at all. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think some of the strengths and weaknesses are of this perspective? Do you think it solves the problem of evil? Or do you think maybe it, it makes matters worse? I'd love to hear from you. One of the easiest ways to reach out to me is via Twitter. I leave a link to my um, Twitter handle, my Twitter page, whatever you would call it. I leave that in in the uh, description of this podcast too, so you can find me uh, on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. That's the best way. I'm also on Instagram if you wanted to find me on there. I do occasionally post things uh, that are podcast related. Plus, you can see pictures of family adventures that I have and my kids and stuff like that too. So feel free to follow me over there. I'd love to love to connect with you guys. I'd love to have more interaction and back and forth dialogue together. So thank you again for listening to today's episode. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.